Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Today we're taking a second look at the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul tackles some thorny problems that were threatening the health and the welfare of that small circle of Christians living in the ancient city of Corinth. And what we're discovering is that we still struggle with some of those same issues today. I mean, what does it mean to, to love and to be loved? What's the best way, the right way to, to express intimacy? How do we get our human relationships to work? Last week we looked at the high value God places on singleness and how single people can see their singleness as a gift from God for this time in their lives. Today we're focused in on the high value God places on married couples and why Paul went into so much detail about their marriage issues. In verse 17 he says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Live as a believer. Whatever your current situation, that's the main verse of this chapter, the main goal for all these relationship issues. Live as a believer. Live as someone who actually is actually following Christ, honoring Christ, someone who is modeling Christ in your relationships. If you make that the overarching principle of your life, then all the other things are going to fall into place. So whether you're married or unmarried, whatever your situation, live as a believer. Seek Christ and his kingdom first. That's how the relationship side of life will come into focus. The message paraphrase version of this verse puts it this way. Don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. Don't think I'm being harder on you than on others. I give the same counsel in all the churches. So what were these various situations that Paul was talking about? Why does he go into so much detail about marriage and divorce in this chapter? To get at that, it's important to understand a bit about the marriage customs in the Roman Empire that were familiar to Paul and his readers, but are not familiar to us today. Understanding their marriage customs might help us to get a grip on the problems that were being faced by these early followers of Jesus. Because in the ancient Roman Empire, you could get married in at least four different ways, all of which were recognized as, as a marriage in some sense. First, remember that about one-third of the total population of the Roman Empire and Corinth were slaves, either indentured servants who were working off a debt or those who were you know, really just bought and sold as property and weren't even considered human. Slaves did not have any rights, any of the rights of Roman citizens. So if they wanted to get married and have a family, the slave owner would have to agree to it. In Latin, that kind of marriage for slaves was called contu bernium, which meant tent companionship. The owner would say, all right, you two can live together. And that constituted a kind of slave marriage. There was no paperwork, no ceremony, just permission to live together. But the slave owner could change his mind at any time and sell off either the husband or the wife or their children to some new owner and split them up. That happened in our own nation's sad and evil history of slavery where married couples and families were split up and sold as slaves. Part of the marriage dilemma in Corinth came from the fact that many of these early Christians were slaves and had that kind of marriage. No paperwork, no ceremony, just a bond to each other. And so what was the early church going to do with these 
kind of informal marriages? Was Paul going to say, all right, all of you who are just tent companions, cut it out? No, he didn't do that. And what happened to that tent marriage if one of the slaves was sold off to a new owner? Were they still married or not? You know, Paul had to teach them about the sanctity of the marriage from God's point of view and try to help them to redeem a tough situation. He was encouraging them to, to bring their lives closer in line with what God would want. Maybe not perfectly, but closer. But regardless of what the government said or the laws said, if they were living together under a tent companionship marriage, he said to them, stay together. Prove yourselves to be true to one another. Love one another as God wants you to. Make that marriage everything God would want it to be. Because as slaves, you know, that was really the only choice they had. And if they were forced to divorce by their owners, they really had no power over that situation. That was the law of the land. And they would have to adapt to that situation, even though it was painful and heartbreaking. A second way you could get married if you were not a slave was called usus. If a woman and a man just lived together for one entire year, at the end of that year, they would be automatically identified as being husband and wife. Today we would call that a, a common law marriage. Not legal in New Jersey, uh, but it is. But common law marriages are legal in nine states plus the District of Columbia. Go figure. One year together and you're legally married, but without any legal ceremony or paperwork. If a couple did not want this usus kind of common law marriage, all they had to do was physically live apart for at least three consecutive nights, and then the countdown would, would start up again. Can you imagine if that was true today? If that was the law today, there'd be a lot of guys panicked over keeping track of, of that deadline, wouldn't there be? Actually, I think it would be a good idea because all the studies show that I've seen show that statistically living together is a really bad way to start a marriage. You actually double your odds on getting divorced if you live together before being married. Plus, it's just not God's way. So anyway, the church had to deal with people who were in these common law marriages, who had no legal papers or anything to identify their status. Again, Paul doesn't say anything specifically about what they ought to do, except that they're to honor the sanctity of the marriage, no matter how the marriage came to be. Let Christ redeem that relationship no matter how they got to where they were. Some in these common law marriages became believers, but others did not. So the split up rate was very high. Many of those who weren't believers, they just decided to opt out of the marriage. But again, Paul's view is that God's high value on marriage trumps any of the norms of society. If they're married, no matter how, they have a calling to make that marriage one that will bring honor to Jesus Christ. But if the other person wants to break this usus covenant, there's no way to stop it. And it's not a shameful or sinful thing. A third way of marriage was called co-emptio and manum, which meant marriage by sale. That's where the father sold his daughter to the husband. This was an arranged marriage between families, often for economic reasons. You know, most marriages throughout human history were arranged marriages between families. People did not, you know, fall in love, get engaged, and then get married. That's relatively a, a new phenomenon in, in the history. And in most of the world, for most of human history, marriages were arranged without any of these, you know, frivolous notions of romance. 
the idea was that parents know best. And couples then learn to love each other after they tied the knot. Often they didn't even meet each other until the wedding. There were a few variations on how these uh, arranged marriages worked, but many in the early church would have been united to their spouse in this way. So now as believers, they had to learn a new way to how to love their spouse in the way of Christ. And the unique thing here is how Paul and the early church elevated the status of women who were sold into these kind of marriages so that they were now considered to be equal partners in the marriages with the same rights, same responsibilities as a husband. We saw that equality in Paul's words in the first half of chapter 7. And as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25, where he instructs husbands to love and honor their wives with the same kind of sacrificial, self-giving, servant love that Christ has for the church. Giving that kind of equal honor to women was something brand new. And that's what it meant to be a believer. Treat your spouse in the way that will honor Jesus Christ. The fourth kind of marriage was called Carnfar, uh, Confar, I gotta get this right, Confar Ritio. And that was the classic kind of legal marriage. Many of our marriage ceremony or traditions today come from this Roman ceremony. The maid of honor, the best man, the flowers, the veil, the cake, even the public vows, though we've Christianized them. It's the kind of marriage we would most identify with today. But as we go into the future, who knows the many different ways our culture will distort or damage or try to change what marriage is all about. What will it look like for our children or our grandchildren? I have no clue. But Paul's words are to all Christians everywhere. Each person should live as a believer. Put Christ first regardless of what the culture says. Follow Christ and then wrestle with how to apply God's eternal truth to this ever-changing world. So all these couples come to church looking for advice on how to be together in a way that is going to display this newfound faith that they have in Jesus. The church had no power to rewrite the laws of Rome. So what Paul does is to uplift the sanctity of marriage whatever way you happen to get into it. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's God's definition of marriage and God's teaching from Genesis to Jesus. And that supersedes all laws made by any government. But like the Corinthians and Christians throughout history, we have a hard time living up to that one flesh relationship. Divorce was actually epidemic in ancient times, actually worse than today. There are records of people being married as many as 27, 28, 29 times. So though some of the particulars are different, we share the same challenge of helping couples be married in a way that brings honor to Christ. And so the church must be about the business of promoting, promoting healthy relationships for singles and married couples. On this point, our culture is completely confused. It needs a clear voice from the church on issues of singleness and healthy marriage. We should be about the business of helping people create healthy marriages and raising healthy families. When your elders and pastors and staff leaders went through our strategic planning process last year, we talked a lot about how could we make an impact on the lives of people right in our own community, our own neighborhood. And by our community, we meant the people right around us who might actually come to our church. Not Elizabeth or Newark or New York City, but right here where, where we live in New Providence and Berkeley Heights and Sterling, Warren, Wachung, Summit, Chatham, 
Madison, Short Hills, all the way up to Morristown. Or if you're at New Community, it's Westfield and Scotch Plains, Fanwood, Cranford, Garwood. Those are our main areas of ministry, and the demographics, friends, are very clear. The vast majority of people who live in our area are married couples with children. And according to the research, their main concerns are their kids, their marriages, their time, and their money. So we thought, that's in our skill set. So that became one of our key initiatives, marriage enrichment and parental support. But we wrestled with that initiative because we didn't want to exclude single people in any way. We definitely want to help sing single people appreciate their value in God's sight. But we can't ignore the fact that we are best equipped to reach out to families. And that families are really the backbone of our church. What we want to do is to be more intentional about ministering to married couples and families to help build healthy Christ-centered marriages to help parents through social events and educational opportunities, through conferences and, and other kinds of experiences, because we want to change our world one home at a time. And this is a challenge for us, because marriages start off with great dreams and starry-eyed devotion. The marriage vows say, you know, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And no one starts off hoping that their marriage will fail. But even with all these noble intentions, couples soon realize that when you have you know, two sinful human beings trying to relate to each other, inevitably there's going to be conflict. There's a gap between what we hope for and what we dream of and what we actually get, a gap between our expectations and reality. We want you know, total love and attention, respect, intimacy, sexual satisfaction, safety. Instead, we may get frustration and power struggles and misunderstanding, distance and anger and resentment because wedlock sometimes becomes gridlock. Romance, you know, is just so much easier than long-term love. Remember the, the hit movie Titanic? It was supposed to be this great love story, but it's not a love story. It's a romance story. The two main characters, the beautiful socialite and the impoverished wanderer, they meet on the doomed ship and they were only with each other for like two or three days. I mean, it's kind of like Romeo and Juliet who killed themselves after knowing each other for less than 48 hours. They didn't really have time to learn who that other person really was in any kind of deep fashion. They had a purely, very superficial relationship. But love, long-term love, means knowing someone deeply with all their faults and shortcomings and having all your own faults and shortcomings exposed. Long-term love requires hard work. And it means recognizing some of the icebergs that are out there that may threaten to sink your matrimonial ship. I want to close just by highlighting two big icebergs that really threaten to sink relationships in our area. The first big iceberg is physical fatigue. Physical fatigue. As the pace of life increases, the busyness is just overwhelming people. All these super parents who are on the go all the time raising their future road scholars and pro athletes, they end up having no time for each other. And when they are together, they simply don't have any energy left to bring to that relationship. And friends, intimacy cannot be rushed. It needs space. It needs time to be nurtured and developed. And what we've seen happen is, is a real shift to child-centered homes where the children's activities, they rule everything. Out of the desire for the child's growth and development, so many families are just completely overscheduled. 
parents begin, uh, begin to get their own sense of value through the achievements of their children. And so the parents are driven to see their children succeed at something or at everything. Driven to give their kids every opportunity, every advantage, so that they can get into that college that the parents can then brag about. Unwittingly, parents may become the main contributors to the increased stress levels and anxieties and disorders of their children. Kids burn out before they even get to high school. And the relationship between the parents is what pays the price. It's why so many marriages fail after the kids leave home for college. The mom and the dad, they don't know how to relate to each other as husband and wife. Without the kids around, they don't know who they are. So parents, you need to have a serious conversation now about your schedule and the stress you're bringing to your family. You have to ask if what you're doing is healthy or is it a little neurotic? Are you actually doing damage to your family by overscheduling everything? You have to begin to think about the long-term consequences of this kind of distracted living. Are you regularly missing worship? If you are, then what are you really teaching your kids about commitment to Christ? So have a conversation. Begin to prune. And pruning activities is very painful. But if this is your issue, you need to do it. And I just have to say this honestly. Some of you are killing your marriages because you are too focused on your children. The best gift you can give your kids is a mom and a dad who love each other and who connect with each other in a healthy way. That will have far more of a long-term positive influence on your children than joining another travel team. The second iceberg is unresolved anger. People who have never learned how to resolve all the unavoidable stresses and frustrations of marriage, and so they become angry over everyday issues. If, if left unresolved, they become this slow, it's like lava, it's like the slow-moving cancer of the spirit. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. You see, it's okay to be angry. That's, that's inevitable. That's normal. Just don't stay angry. Get rid of it every day. It is toxic waste in relationships. Anger itself is not bad, but when we let it take root, we set ourselves up for a boatload of trouble. We give Satan a foothold. And that's when relationships start to fall apart. In his very good book, Making Love Last Forever, Gary Smalley writes that we should think of anger as this sticky, kind of foul-smelling, corrosive substance that can be compressed and stuffed into a spray can. Angry people go around just spraying their anger on others, right in the eyes. It's like relational pepper spray. Then the other person, you know, in their reaction, they get out their anger can. And people get caught into this vicious cycle of spraying and refilling and feed off of each other's anger, attacking and defending. Two people who are so bruised emotionally, they can't even talk about anything without the anger coming up. And the relationship becomes like living in a minefield. One false step and kaboom, there you go, somebody explodes. The angry person usually doesn't even realize how much their anger is influencing their behavior. Doesn't realize how much damage is being inflicted on the marriage because they can only see the other person's faults. And one way to know if you're reaching the escalation point is actually to check your pulse. Seriously. If your heart is over 100 beats per minute, you physically begin to lose your ability to listen and to reason. When the brain is moving a mile a minute, it is not uncommon for people to zone out. It's not that you're not hearing, 
your brain is simply not processing what you hear. In situations of escalation, somebody has to soften. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you're dealing with an angry person, you have to get soft as soon as you can. Not a doormat, but your demeanor. Maybe you feel the problem is only 5% your fault, but get as soft as you can, even if the other person doesn't respond well. That doesn't mean you're giving in. It means you're realizing, hey, I'm 100% responsible for me. I'm responsible for my actions, how I handle my anger. If I let this anger stay in me, that's my problem. As a believer in Christ, I must start forgiving first, even if the other person never comes to seek forgiveness. You know, your anger is your responsibility. You say, I'm God's child, and he's told me, don't keep anger in your heart. It's a foothold for Satan. And I don't want Satan to have a foothold in my life. You don't want to have Satan have a stranglehold on your marriage. Or do you want to walk with God in his light? It is worth your while to forgive, to get soft, and to turn it into something that will give glory to God. Well, you know, the Titanic was warned six separate times to slow down and change course, take the southern route because of icebergs had been sighted. They ignored all the warnings because they thought, hey, we're unsinkable. Is there an anger warning light going off in your mind this morning? Is there a fatigue warning light going off in your mind this morning? At some point you must say, we've got to pay attention to these icebergs before they sink our marriage. Let's be a church that encourages people, that helps people build and maintain flourishing relationships, especially in healthy marriages. Where you are right now is God's place for you. In all of your relationships, live as a believer in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this challenge to really live as a believer. That means we actually act out all the stuff that we've heard about forgiveness and about prayer and about patience and about all the things that Paul is going to talk about a little later on in 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter. Lord, we have to learn how to live that way and not just make it some ideal that we can never reach. So help us, Lord, as we try to establish a, a place where people can find strength and encouragement for their marriages, where we can really uh, help families to be knit together in a healthy way, even if that means being counterculture to the world around us, Lord. We want to have marriages and families and relationships that give glory to you. Help us to live as believers. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.